Hey there, welcome to episode 306 of the AMPM podcast. My guest this week is Matt Howitt. Matt heard about selling on Amazon four or five years ago from a buddy of his. It intrigued him. He ended up buying an Amazon business, then bought a few more, and now he's got 17 of them. In fact, he would be classified as one of the aggregators that's in the space. We're going to be talking about his journey and what he's doing to give his company a better chance of survival in a space that's had a lot of ups and downs over the last few years. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the AMPM podcast. Welcome to the AMPM podcast. We explore opportunities in e-commerce. We dream big and we discover what's working right now. Plus, plus, this is the podcast where money never sleeps. Working around the clock in the AM and the PM. Are you ready for today's episode? I said, I said are, are you, you ready? Ready. Let's do this. Let's do this. Here's your host, Here's your host Kevin King. Kevin King. Matt Howitt, how are you doing, man? So happy to have you on the AMPM podcast. Welcome, my friend. I'm doing well, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me on. This is a lot of fun. Now, this, this is like we're doing this remotely, but we just live a few, few miles from each other. You're just down the street here in Austin from me, right? That's right. Yeah. I live in Westlake. You live downtown. You're cool. I live out in the burbs. Uh, but uh, yeah. We, no, you, we, live in the rich, you live in the rich zip code. You live in the rich zip code. I, I look at the zip codes, you know, in Austin, they come on the Austin Business Journal. Here's the zip codes with the highest, uh, highest uh, household income. And I think, I think that's the zip code you're in. I might be downtown, but you're in the rich area. That, that might be true, my friend. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm, you know, I'm a long time Austinite like you are, right? I know you, you did your world tour there for a number of years, but your base has been Austin for a long time. I moved here in 1997, which, but I think you've been around almost as long, right? Or longer maybe? Yeah, I came to Austin uh, after I graduated from Texas A&M in uh, 1990. So I came to yeah. Austin in 1990. My dad was very disappointed with me. I came with a marketing degree, and uh, I slept on my buddy's couch for a year. Actually, it was a, a house up by, over close to UT, and we actually I slept on his couch for about a year, so right in front of the TV. So I had to wait for everybody else in the house to go to sleep. There's like seven guys living in this house, and we sold T-shirts, actually, on the UT campus. And so I, I used to get a lot of uh, flack from people at A&M, like, what are you doing? You graduate from A&M and you're going over there and uh, selling t-shirts on the UT campus. And I, I feel yeah, like so. this is the greatest marketing degree you could have possibly gotten. First, <laughs> first you got a, a marketing degree at Texas A&M, which might in fact be borderline useless at this point. Then you spend a year marketing t-shirts to UT students. That's probably the most valuable marketing experience you could possibly have at that age. Well, what's it just UT students? That that year, UT did really well in football. We and you, you'll like this. I mean, we we one of my friends was still in college uh, at the time in the engineering school, and so we got a special permission to set up little tables on the corners around UT, like were uh, high traffic walking areas, and we and right then uh, the song uh, from MC Hammer, "You Can't Touch This," was like a hot song. Sure. So we took the U U. And the T and put those in like orange and the can't touch this oh, and did this like cool little thing and set these tables up everywhere to actually sell. And we got permission because we were giving, quote unquote, a percentage back to the engineering department or, you know, some fundraiser kind of thing, which I don't think we ever paid anything. But we got permission and then we would do game days. You know, you'd have back then the stadium, I think, was smaller, 80, 90,000 people back then coming on a game day, we would sell, set up and sell these shirts, but nobody could see us. Nobody that, you know, you have masses of people walking into a stadium and the only people that can see your little table are the ones that pass right in front of you. 
And so my buddies uh, that I was doing this with, they're like, we got to fix this. So they built this catapult system. So they built this, like, took these two by fours, it painted them black and like put all the hinges on them. And so they would fold down flat so you could put them in the back of a station wagon and we would take them out and we would unfold them. It's kind of like an unfo- picture an unfold, uh, unfolding a, a, a beach chair or something. We'd unfold this beach chair and they would pop way up into the air and we'd hang these shirts off of a clothesline way up like 10 feet in the air. So you could see them from you know above the crowd and everything. And we would sell forty to $50,000 worth on a game day. You know, when you're 22 years old and getting forty to $50,000 in cash and splitting that among three partners every game day, yeah, you're, you're riding pretty high. This is such uh, a Kevin so. King story for so many reasons. <laughs> but my favorite part of it being a Kevin King story is not that you're making forty dollars or $50,000 a day, but that you're making forty dollars or $50,000 a day, but still sleeping on a couch. That's my favorite. I was. <laughs> I was sleeping on a Dude, couch. Dude, you can afford a much better bed than a couch when you're making, you know, I guess it's what, only four or five, maybe six, six home dates. Yeah. yeah, six home games, I yeah, think. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and we did uh, like making about $10,000, but I was buying nice stereo stuff. and But I did. I moved out a year later into my own little apartment. And, you know, I had the nicest TV and I had, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But so, yeah, it, it was good. But we actually took that and then we actually went on the road. We're like, this is kind of cool. Let's go hit all the spring break spots. And that's where we lost the money. We actually went to took a station wagon full of shir- shirts, not UT shirts, but other stuff we did and tried to hit all the beach towns from Padre Island to Florida and try to sell shirts to the beach shops. And uh, that that was a cool trip, you know. Nice, a lot of good beer drinking and having fun, but uh, it, we didn't make too much money off of that. Part I was going to say, I think it was enriching in other ways would be my guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it was good times. So that's awesome. So yeah, I've been in Austin a while. Been, uh, yeah. I've been an entrepreneur my, my whole life. And that's where a lot of people, they always ask you, when you get into this business, you know, where'd you, what'd you do before? I like, uh, slept on a couch and like, uh, I've never worked for anybody. I've worked for something. I've had two jobs where I had to fill out a, what do you call the thing? A W2 where I had to fill out a W2. Uh, that was McDonald's and a pizza delivery and, yeah, uh, high actually, school and college. You fill, you fill out the W4, that's it. but the W2 is how much. Oh, okay. That's, that's what it is. See, see, I don't even know the name. I don't there you go. Yeah, yeah, you're right. W2 is what you got when you actually got paid. <laughs> That's your annual income. I've actually never made a resume. I've wow. actually, I think I had to do, I had to do one in college, you know, for, for a class or something, but that's, I've never actually made a resume. But speaking of resumes, your resume is impressive. Your resume, what, it's Harvard grad. What's your background? The, the old story background? That is, that's correct. I graduated from Harvard in 1997. And as I say, moved to Austin right, right thereafter um, and worked for, you know, a string of high-tech companies here in Austin for many, many years before becoming an Amazon entrepreneur. Um, But yeah, yeah, so sure. We don't have to talk about my resume, uh, but uh, (laughs) definitely, you know, cut my entrepreneurial teeth uh, working for, you know, sort of different than so many other entrepreneurs in the Amazon space in the sense that Almost all of them are bootstrapped, as, as was your T-shirt business, for sure, was bootstrapped. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the companies that I worked for always had some sort of institutional backing, some sort of venture capital type investment, um, you know, from really when the time I got out of college. Um, and I wasn't the founder of uh, any of those businesses. And a couple of them, I was like the first employee that the founders had hired. 
uh, but I didn't found any of them. But I worked for a string of companies here in Austin, I guess uh, five total before starting Profound Commerce, um, all of which, you know, through some uh, a, a big a combination of luck and good, but I think more more luck than good had, uh, you know, successful outcomes for their investors. So I got to, you know, sort of over the course of the first 20 years or so of my career, just see how that was done. How is institutional capital raised? How is a story told about what the company is going to be and how it's going to evolve? You know, how do multiple rounds of financing work, hiring, et cetera, you know? And so I've worked for, I have had uh, quite a few jobs. I've written my resume quite a few times. Uh, and in total, before founding Profound Commerce and becoming a CEO myself, I worked directly for five other CEOs. When you got into this Amazon space, what actually lured you there? I mean, you said you had a side hustle and you were doing stuff. But I remember when I first met you, I think it was at the Billion Dollar Seller Summits. You came uh, to, to one of those a couple years ago. Yep. And, and then we, we had, a, I think, lunch afterwards because we were both here in Austin. And you're, you're telling me a little bit. But you were still working at that time for yeah. one of these companies. That's and you were doing the side hustle on the side with the Amazon That's stuff. Right. So how did this Amazon thing lure you in? Totally. Uh, well, you know, I, Austin is a very vibrant community of entrepreneurs and all sorts of people doing things. Um, and it's one of the reasons it's so fun to be here. It's such an interesting city with such interesting character and culture and people. Uh, and I had a, a friend of mine who had gotten involved in the Amazon space. Uh, and he and another guy and I would meet regularly and we would talk about what we were all up to. We were friends and work colleagues as well, you know, at various companies over the years. We just hang out. And, you know, he would come in and he would tell us about what he was doing. Uh, in the Amazon space. And I just, I couldn't get enough of it. I kept hearing what he was up to and, and sort of the results he was getting. And I was just like, this is like, this is really, really fascinating. And he's like, yeah, it's pretty cool. Isn't it? I'm like, no man, it's like really cool. <laughs> and uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Like whatever. I feel like I was more into it than he was. And so that's sort of what, you know, kind of got me started. And I was like, well, I'm pretty interested in this. I should like look into it. And you know, I thought to myself, well, I could start one of these businesses on Amazon. And I didn't know anything about the tool sets back then. I didn't know, you know, how to use Helium 10 to, you know, find the right keywords and find a product that is low competition, high search volume, all these kind of things. So I, I, I didn't know what to do there. But I, but what I did have some experience in previously was buying other businesses. I had done that as a side hustle. I'd bought an internet site. Um, uh, from a broker. And I thought, well, interesting, you know, let me see what I can find. And then I started to look a little bit and I noticed that there were like, and this was in 20, you know, spring of 2018, maybe. Um, it turned out there were like a lot of Amazon businesses for sale. Of course, there became a lot, a lot more over time into 2019, 2020, 2021, and, and now in 2022. But, you know, even back then there, there were at least a handful of businesses for sale. And I looked at a couple and I thought they were pretty interesting. And I, you know, just sort of like on a whim decided to buy one because uh, I was interested. And that was, with your, that was with your own money or did you raise money to buy that business? It was with a combination of my own money and some friends' money. Those two guys I was talking about, they kicked in some money. Uh, we found some other folks that I knew. It wasn't an institutional funding by any stretch of imagination. You might call it angel investing, but you, it's probably really just like, friends and family. There, there was no actual family involved, but just friends. 
um, who, you know, each of them cut me a check for, you know, either, you know, mid five figures, a couple of them, six figures. And we went off and bought this, you know, Amazon businesses for about $800,000. And so, and, and I didn't know what I was doing at all. I just thought this is cool. I'm going to figure it out. This guy's figuring it out. All these other people are figuring it out. Some of them are getting really successful. Um, it's, it can all be completely time shifted. Like, you know, I can talk to the suppliers in China at night. I can do almost all the work, not, you know, outside the normal office hours. You know, everyone, uh, you know, loves that aspect. I think of being an Amazon entrepreneur is it does give you a lot of time flexibility. You certainly have to work hard. Um, but you can kind of work at all sorts of hours and from all sorts of places. Um, and you know, be successful. And so I was like, oh well, I'll just work my day job, and then I'll work on this, and that'll be cool. And that's that's what happened. And when I got into it, I didn't really think that it it would ever become anything as big as it has now become for me. Um, but I really got more and more hooked over time. I thought it was interesting when my friend was describing it to me, and then it just got more and more and more fascinating once I actually was like in the business of operating and growing one of these businesses myself. And, uh, you know, at, I think I bought the first Amazon business that, you know, the first Amazon business I ever bought, I bought it in like September of, you know, 2018, I guess. And then, you know, we went through the whole holiday peak season. The business was growing very rapidly when I had bought it. It was like growing at almost a hundred percent year over year, just sort of organically. And honestly, you know, it was easier back then, as we all know, uh, on Amazon, less competition, lower cost per click, all sorts of things that made it easier, cheaper supply chain costs, you name it. So, um, you know, took the business through December and into January, and I was just looking at the results, like, how much did I pay in September? How much, you know, revenue had we accumulated over those four months? How much profit had we made? Um, you know, how much time had I spent working on it? And I remember just thinking in January of that year, so January of 2019, just like, this is so cool. I want to do more of this. I want to do a lot more. And, you know, I'm excited about the one I own and I want to own more. And I, you know, maybe this is like a thing I could do, you know, as a real job. Like I could, I could build a company around this. Um, and at the time, so, you know, so I was like, at that point, I was an aggregator with one business. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and so, you know, I, <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, and I kind of knew about aggregators that were out there. Like we, you had the er aggregators, the proto aggregators were on the scene by that point. Like Thrasio, as it turns out, bought its first business in June of 2018, I think is the right right around that time. And so we, you know, Profound Commerce bought its first business. And by the way, it wasn't even called Profound Commerce, which is of course the name of the aggregator that I now run and are founded in that run. Um, it wasn't even called that back then. It didn't even have a name basically. Uh, but we bought our first business in September. So uh, we didn't quite go as fast as Thrasio. I always like to joke about, but um, you know, that model was coming on the scene. There was a lot of people talking in the in the in the buying and selling community at, at that point about hey there are some people who are now becoming like repeat and multiple buyers like you know, brokers like quiet light or you know uh, website closers like they were seeing the same guys pop up over and over again looking to buy these businesses 
even though, you know, sort of the aggregator model hadn't launched yet. So there was Thrasio, then there, of course, there's, there's Richard Jalachindra's company, uh, who you also know because he's an Austin guy, which is 101 Commerce, uh, which, of course, eventually sort of merged with another aggregator. And I'm not even sure what fully is going on there anymore. But, um, you know, there's a couple guys, a couple companies doing something like what I was thinking about doing. Um, and I just thought that this was a really good entrepreneurial opportunity, which was just, you know, the Amazon, don't need to tell anybody on this, on this, uh, you know, podcast, but like the Amazon market is massive. E-commerce is massive. Uh, you know, Amazon is the single greatest aggregator of consumer demand for physical products that the world has ever seen. And we all know that by like the incredible search volume that Amazon has for every keyword you could possibly think of on the planet and many, many more that you could never possibly think of. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's just, it, it, it became all of a sudden it just looked to me like an amazing opportunity. Like, can I buy more of these businesses? Can I pay the right amount of money? They're growing really rapidly. Can I put together, uh, you know, a team of people who know how to do this well, who know how to you know, find good businesses, but more importantly than that, and this is, you know, I've always had the mindset of, you know, operator first. And so it was always for me, like, I want to buy these businesses because I think the brands are cool. I think the products they sell are neat. I see opportunity to sell more products to this customer base, you know, improve roadmap, you know, expand them in all sorts of different ways, do brand building, marketing, all the things that we do uh, to make our businesses more successful over time. Um, I wanted to do all that. It wasn't just, you know, about buying the next one for me. It was about finding ones that I really wanted to run. Um, and so, you know, in it, 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 back to the origin story, and we kind of looked around, I looked around for a couple things. First, I looked at, wanted to look at more businesses, but I also needed more money. Like I had essentially, you know, tapped out the network of friends at that point. Because um, you went from one to four, I went quickly, to from right? one, I went from you... one to three in about to three one to three in about three months and then I the fourth one took us another like nine months um, and so but by by basically a year and a couple months later I I was running a small aggregator with four different businesses uh, how many people did you have working for you at that point because you were still doing a lot of the yeah well, the da I, daily stuff yeah absolutely and I, I mean even to this day I'm still super hands on even though you know Profound Commerce now owns 17 of them um, but you know back then we had uh, so you know putting the team together I eventually uh, convinced a really good friend of mine who became co-founder of Profound Nirav the God uh, to come on board so it was Nirav and me and then we had like one or two U.S. employees. Uh, and we started building in the Philippines really early. So by the time we even had three brands, we had a team of four people that we've never called VAs. We've always just called them our Philippines team. But, you know, the conventional. Some of those came from one of the guys you bought, right? That's right. So um, as many of you know, uh, you know, Mike Jackness is uh, podcast, Ecom Crew, uh, is very well known. And he talks about his business, Color It, uh, that he sold which was in uh, spring of 2019, he sold it to me or to me and my company, Profound Commerce. And uh, Mike is a great guy and actually is now an investor in Profound Commerce. Um, and he you know, had also been building in the Philippines for a long time, even before I got to know him or got to know 
color at the business. So he was helpful in helping me sort of seed our Philippines team over there. Some of the folks who worked on color it for him uh, in the Philippines came over to work for us as part of that acquisition. And that really got us started. Um, but we've scaled significantly since then. Um, you know, that was like four people, uh, and now we're at 45 in the Philippines. So, um, you know, it's just, it's definitely, uh, was extremely helpful for Mike, uh, to sort of bootstrap us over there. And we, we have always had sort of like, that's just an extension of our company kind of mentality, uh, with, with it. And so now, you know, we, we do an incredible number of things in the Philippines and we're, hyper-efficient from the U.S. perspective. I think that's one of the one of the things about Profound that's different than some of the other aggregators who just seem to hire so many. But, you know, we today, we still only have 25 U.S. employees. And, you know, we're managing 17 brands with those 25 people and another 40. Is that working people. in an office or are they remote, all remote? So it, it's hybrid. Um, we have about 12 people here in Austin. And we do have an Austin-based office. Uh, and then we have another 10 of those people who are U.S. employees who are spread around the country. Um, you know, we, we sort of have, you know, look, we did it, you know, the pandemic obviously completely changed the game in terms of how office versus remote work really was done and how it was accepted. And I think, you know, from my perspective as, you know, CEO and founder of a company, uh, we need to get the best talent that we can to make the company successful and the best talent isn't necessarily in Austin and doesn't necessarily want to come into an office every day. Um, and so we have a very flexible policy. It's interesting. We have people who really do want to come into an office every day, and they do. Uh, I work out of our office only two days a week, Tuesday and Thursdays. Um, and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm at home. You know, We're doing this chat on a Friday. I'm, at, I'm working from home today. Um, and we have a very flexible policy, and it works really well for us. And I think it's great at attracting talented people because we give them the flexibility that they want and you know, treat them like adults, assume that they're going to get work done. We, you know, and, and by the way, like have a great culture, have, you know, meaningful work to do that makes people want to work. And it also makes them want to work hard and, you know, work smart. And so that's sort of like my mantra that I don't need to be making sure that they're, you know, in their seat at 9am at my office in South Austin. I don't care. I just want them to be kicking ass uh, and, you know, making the company more successful and however that, that works best for them is what's going to work best for us overall as a company. So, so how hard is it to actually find these people though? I mean, a lot of aggregators have had trouble finding quality people that know this stuff. I mean, you might be able to get someone that graduated even from Harvard with a, a degree in business or marketing or whatever, and they come into this, come into this yeah. space and they're like totally lost. So how, how do you find those people? It's a different animal. Um, you know, I, I sometimes uh, relate Amazon to almost being like a trading desk. Like you've got to be, you know, on your listings, on your competitors' listings. You've got to, you know, deal with negative reviews and hijacks and all sorts of crazy stuff, right? In a way that is, I think, very different than conventional businesses. The Amazon marketplace is a whole animal unto itself. Um, and it's different than selling, you know, on your your website and B2C business. It's different than selling at retail. It's just very, very different animal. And so, you know, when we first started, Kevin, like there weren't, nobody knew, you know, it, it, it very much reminds me actually of a, a different phase of my career, you know, when I had just graduated from college 
and the internet was was substantially disrupting the world. You know, it's sort of the first version of it was beginning to disrupt everything. And one of the things that it was disrupting was also like employment in the sense of you had all these internet companies that were trying to hire people who knew how to do stuff, you know, on the internet, how to build things. And, you know, there was a huge industry of that now, obviously, but back then nobody knew anything about how to build anything on the internet. And I think it was, and we were all like fumbling around trying to figure it out. And I felt like Amazon, you know, when, when we were first getting started, you know, in, in 2018 and 2019 is the same way. Like you couldn't hire anyone who knew anything like, you know, the people who knew stuff were working for themselves and maybe they were, maybe they were working at agencies. Um, but it wasn't like, you know, Amazon, you know, seller central experience was a resume item, if you will, <laughs> that, that people, you know, put on their resume. If anything, they were like me doing side hustles where their day job was at the top of their resume and, you know, their, their Amazon, uh, you know, business was not mentioned at all. You couldn't find those people. And so, um, yeah, you know, at first it was really hard and, you know, you, you don't necessarily hire uh, based on the people's experience uh, or their specific skills, right? You hire more on their ability to learn quickly and to, you know, be a culture fit and to assimilate into your company, et cetera. I mean, I'm sure many, many people have had the experience where you hire someone who's supposed to be an incredible expert and then, you know, but they don't, are not compatible culturally in any way, or, you know, they think that their previous context is the same as this context. So, you know, every problem that they solve at your company is, well, we did it this way at my last company. So that's where we should do it here. Really? Maybe not. Maybe things are different here in some set of ways that make that solution invalid. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. I don't know. But it's, it's so, so, you know, you sort of get into this mode of like, you know, experienced people might not always help you. And then the flip side of that is like, Sometimes you hire someone who's inexperienced, who's, you know, super motivated, great learner. And you're like, I can't believe how impactful this person is. I can't believe how quickly they're picking all this stuff up. I can't believe, you know, the value they're creating for me and my business. And so, you know, the people that we hired, you know, at the beginning, they were just smart, motivated, eager to learn. And, you know, they cared. And I think that that, you know, goes a really long way. And it's a developing space. And what that means is the companies are developing. They're all immature in their process and, and you know, in their leadership, et cetera. The people who are working there are immature, uh, not in, you know, like in a personal sense, but they, you know, they're, they're not experienced. They haven't been doing this for 20 years because this hasn't been something that you can do for 20 years. So, you know, I think, you know, when these, you know, when all these companies launched, when we launched, you know, yeah, there was no one to hire. And the difference in terms of whether you did a good job or not was not whether like you found people with the appropriate skills, but if you, you know, previous experiences, et cetera, but more if you found the right people who were you know able to learn, fit the culture that you were trying to build, et cetera. And so I think, you know, if you have a lot of experience doing that, you know, building companies from, you know, small to bigger, like I did, uh, you know, in my previous roles working for these different startup like companies for about 20 years, you're, you're at a real advantage. Like you've, you've been hiring forever. And, you know, I was hiring in the, you know, in the early days of the internet, internet when no one knew about the internet. And then I was hiring in the early days of being an Amazon aggregator when nobody knew anything about Amazon. And so it was fine. But, but, you know, now it's sort of an interesting different ball game. Like over time we've accumulated, 
you know, now this has been around for a few years, right? Like most of the bigger aggregators launched in the summer of 2020. So, you know, we're past the, most of them are now at least two years old. And what that means is that you have people who've worked there for two years who now have two years of experience. It's definitely an evolution in terms of what skills are available and how you think about, you know, constructing a team that can go about and, you know, accomplish the objective and be successful. But yeah, it was it was it was hard in the early days. But I felt like I had some experience, not specifically hiring for Amazon, but but experience hiring in this sort of context where no one knows ever anything and it's an emerging market. So you went from these three, four companies, and then you decide, hey, we're going to really blow this thing up, and you went out there and you used your your knowledge from your last several companies on raising money, and you raised north of $50 million. Is that is that correct for Profound? Yeah, so that's correct. So yeah, the total amount of money that we've raised is $53 million, um, and that's spread across equity and uh, and debt. But yes, we, we were fortunate. We, we spent a long time looking for the right partner. I mean, I can't describe to you how weird it was for, for me and my co-founder, Nirav, in the summer of 2020, when all of these companies started to launch, when Perch and Hey, well, Perch is a little earlier than that, but would say like Heyday and Elevate and Cap Hill and, and a number of them, all of whom I now know the CEOs and some of the you know, employees of those companies. But, you know, I think it was, we had the same experience that I think all of these other Amazon sellers had. I mean, at that time, we still had four businesses. And you're hearing about these people that you, you're hearing about these companies that you've never heard of before, who suddenly are saying, putting out press releases that are saying, we raised $100 million to buy Amazon businesses. And you look at, you know, you go to their website and you look at their, the people on their website, on their about page, and you're like, I've been in the Amazon space for two years. I've never heard of any of these people. Who are they, right? Like, I think that was the reaction that the entire Amazon seller community had when aggregators launched. Who are these guys? Like, it wasn't anybody you'd ever met at a conference before, but it was so interesting, right? They had a skill set that was pretty much fundamentally different than other than the Amazon sellers, right? They could go out and tell a story and get institutional capital. What Amazon sellers could do is find an amazing keyword with search volume, find a supplier, by hook or by crook, get a good product or a decent product built. It depends on what era you're in. Either you know, grab the product off <laughs> Alibaba and just throw it up on Amazon, or maybe you know, later on, like actually do some innovation, et cetera. It's a little harder, right? But you know, they had a very specific skill set. There was almost no overlap between those two uh, uh, types of people. Um, and so it was just like very strange. So when that started happening to us, we're like, you know, it was, it wasn't like we had never had the idea either to try to go raise more money from outside investors to invest in more of our businesses. It's just when we would go talk to them, most of them weren't that interested. Um, and so, but then all of a sudden all these guys who, you know, and we see ourselves as operators, not finance guys, but then all these finance guys are out there raising hundreds, literally hundreds of millions, and then eventually billions of dollars to you know prosecute this thing that we've already been doing for two years. And so when that started to happen, we were like, well, like, damn, like we should get our own. Like, how do we, how do we get that check? Like, and we kind of, we think we know what we're doing, right? We've been doing this for two years, at least already. We bought four businesses. They've been successful. We've put together a team. It's not a big team, et cetera, but it's a team that knows what it's doing. Hired a few people in the U.S., hired more in the Philippines, et cetera. 
Um, and we went and knocked on the doors that all of these different guys had knocked on. They were like, yeah, you know, that's cool that you have four Amazon businesses. You know, these guys are going to have 50 in like a week or something. You know, they're going to buy 50 in the next month. That's a much more interesting model to us than your four. I'm like, well, we, we, we could probably buy some more, like, but we need more money. And they're like, yeah, well, but you've only bought four and it's been two years. You're like, you guys kind of suck. And I'm like, oh man. So, but we eventually did find a great partner. Um, which is Adelaide Capital Management is who our investor that invested $53 million. And it took us a, a long time. It took us uh, almost, well, from start to finish, it took us a year. But like we we started talking about it maybe like in the first six months. And then it took another four to six months to put the whole deal together. Um, but, you know, Adelaide has been, I, I mean, I tell everyone this, and it's just, it's they've been really, really good to us. Um, they've been incredibly supportive. Uh, from the moment that we met them, I think there was some really, you know, good alignment in terms of how we view the world and how they how they view the world. And so, uh, we spent some time. It, it took a long time to hammer out the deal, as I was saying. But you know, by the fall of 2021 is when they, uh, you know, gave us we we finished all of the documentation and the legal work around actually raising that financing. So, you know, we started thinking about that in the summer of 2020 when all the other aggregators started launching, but then it took us another year to actually find the right partner who, who we wanted to work with and who wanted to work with us. And, and finding that mutual fit was, was difficult. It was a great move for us and it's been a great relationship. So yeah. And that, do you think you have an advantage because you were more of an operator versus a finance guy? Well, all these others were more finance guys and just seizing the gold rush versus you were a true operator before you were really expanded out. I hope that is the case, Kevin. And I can tell you that now, as we think about you know raising more money for the company and continuing to try to expand, that is a big piece of what we talk about when we talk to investors. You know, and and we have some great proof points. Uh, you know, in terms of like the growth that we've been able to achieve with our businesses. Um, you know, sort of the discipline we've had financially in terms of how we've, we've scaled our own, you know, corporate expenses, the number of people we have, how we've, you know, uh, sort of used the Philippines in a very leveraged way where, you know, for essentially for every, you know, one U.S. or Western country employee, we have two Philippines people um, that, you know, it's not like they directly support each one of those people, but, you know, we have a very different ratio than most folks have in terms of like U.S. to low-cost geography headcount. Um, so yeah, we talk about those things. And, and, I, and you know, I think it does give us a real advantage. I think the other thing about us that is an advantage is those guys scale way too fast. You know, it's not necessarily clear that more is better in this space. Like, are you better off with 250 Amazon accounts than you are with 100 or 50? Like, sure, you might have more revenue, but does that mean you're going to make you're going to be more successful as a business? Um, and I think that that is, you know, at first, this space was all about just buy as many of these things as I possibly can as quickly as I can continue to escalate the amount of money that I'm raising and put out more and more press releases about how much money I have and how many businesses I own. But at the end of the day, I think you kind of have to ask yourself, so what? So like. Once you buy a hundred businesses, a hundred Amazon accounts, 
is it really better to buy 200 Amazon accounts? And if you're to then buy another hundred and have 200, and if you're going to market, you know, either to attract capital or to go public or to sell, you know, to some other entity, are you really better off with 200 versus 100? You're, I mean, I guess you're a more attractive company, the bigger you are, but that doesn't mean that operationally you're able to manage, you know, that many. And I think, you know, from my perspective, the aggregators that scaled the fastest and were the best at attracting capital and then putting it to work are actually the ones that at least, you know, sort of from a rumor mill perspective are doing the worst, right? Like who are in the most trouble. And I think, you know, we, we were last year and, and I'm stealing this from Ryan Neeson at Elevate. So I need to properly credit him before I do it. But like, uh, you know, we were all running this race and everyone thought, you know, buy faster, you know, buy more, raise more money. And because there was a perception that, you know, the longer you wait, the more expensive various businesses got, you know, the more likely the good businesses were going to get, you know, snapped up by a competitor, all these sort of things. And, you know, in 2022, that has completely changed because, the world has changed significantly from, you know, an interest rate outlook from, you know, inflation, which is why interest rates are raising, rising because, you know, government is trying to combat inflation. You know, we have war between Russia and Ukraine, you know, that 2021 was, you know, we'd had, we'd had millions or billions, trillions of dollars, I should say, injected into the economy because of COVID. It was a very, very frothy environment in 2021. And now things have really turned around and change and you can just check your stock portfolio to sort of know how difficult that's been um you know and, and sort of what the outlook is now compared to what it was in 2021 even some of the people at some of these big ones like you know uh, i just saw on equity zen someone from thrashio is selling their their shares at an 80 percent discount over the last valuation you know last valuation was 7.3 billion yeah. And they're sh- selling at an eighty percent discount to the last valuation, just dumping. Uh, so there, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of lost faith in a lot of the aggregators, and you're seeing a lot of them are consolidating, or they're buying the the bigger ones are buying the little ones, and some of them are going to probably go out of business. So where do you think this is this is headed in in this space? I think you know. Look, my perspective is that this is still, at least to some extent, a grand experiment to figure out if these models work. And actually, let me put it a different way. Different way. I think this model does work, but that doesn't mean that all the companies that have given all of this capital figure out the right model, right? And I think, you know, there are going to be some set of winners in this space. I, I firmly believe that 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 there are going to be companies that figure out how to operate successfully, that grow and have you know sort of meaningful returns to their investors, you know, create meaningful value for their employees make their customers happy, all the stakeholders, right? But I think, you know, like in any sort of frothy market or mania or whatever you want to call it, there are going to be a lot of losers. And in fact, there'll probably be a disproportionate number of losers relative to the winners. And so I think we will see some amount of consolidation in the sense of aggregator X will buy aggregator Y. And, but I think that what the issue with that is that bigger may not be better. Um, and that a measured pace to grow, sometimes the tortoise really does win the race. And it's just not entirely clear, you know, as in the next few years develop here, that the biggest guys who grew the fastest are going to be the actual winners. 
Um, and I think, you know, it's possible that they, you know, find way, you know, they're, they're the ones in the most trouble from what we can tell, uh, in terms of just like how difficult it is to manage their businesses now. Um, but you know, it's possible they'll, they'll figure it out, but I think it's also, you know, maybe smaller companies that scale faster like us wind up being the ones that are actually the true like long-term winners in the space and so you know that's the bet that we've always made and it's funny i didn't really choose that bet i just am it like i didn't i'm not a finance guy like i didn't i couldn't raise a couple hundred million dollars in the summer of 2020 i didn't know how to do it and so i didn't choose to be the tortoise i just that's my skill set if you will and so, but it might just be, you know, a lucky tortoise, if you will, and that it could work <laughs> out for us, uh, you know, relative to some of these other guys who, you know, not like we didn't have similar ambitions. They just had the ability to execute it uh, much faster, but perhaps not better. So, but, but the story is still to be written in this regard. Like, I, as I said, I do think there eventually will be winners in this space. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not just like a manic buying spree. You really do have to build. You really do have to operate. And I think that a lot of folks got into this thinking that it was an easy money, you know, like make a fast buck. And, you know, and you just keep, you know, they always go up and to the right and, you know, they're just going to grow forever and you don't have to worry about competition and like, your garlic press is always going to be superior to the next guy's garlic press. And the fact that you got 10,000 reviews on it, it's going to be every, you know, it's going to sell, it's going to continue to grow forever. And anyone who's been playing the Amazon game for any period of time knows that is not how it works. I, you know, one thing I always like to say is all real estate on Amazon is fleeting. You don't own your keyword. You don't own your search rank. You have to earn it every day. And there are people out there who are trying to, knock you off your pedestal, right? Take away your bestseller badge, take away your top three rank, et cetera, et cetera. Let alone all the things like how Amazon's making it more and more expensive to operate. Don't even set all that aside, right? The competition is brutal. It's brutal. It's one of the purest markets out there. Um, and the idea that, you know, you can buy some business, it doesn't even matter what you pay for it. And that it's just going to, you know, have those returns or better forever with, you know, sort of minimal investment. So you can just kind of ignore it and move on to buying the next one. That's not how it works. That's not how any business works. And I don't think the laws of physics have been changed by the Amazon seller, you know, third party marketplace. They have not. You still have to operate. And if you don't do those things well, you will not win. You will die. I agree. I agree. So if any of the 17 that you've bought so far just turned into be a mess, it wasn't what it was cracked up to be or what it looked like once you got truly inside of it? I mean, I think we, we make mistakes all the time. Like we are, we are not perfect uh, like everybody else. Uh, there are a couple of those 17 that we've bought that, you know, I, I wouldn't say there was fraud or that we were misled or anything like that, but we, we under, you know, we made a set of assumptions that have proven to be bad, you know, in certain cases, like we didn't fully understand, uh, you know, the impact that COVID had had. Uh, on the business. And we, we thought it was smaller than it was. And it was actually much larger. We didn't really understand like how COVID had impacted it. And then, you know, another year goes by and you're like, wait, the business is very different. Um, you know, there, there are a couple of businesses like that. There are a couple where, you know, we have one business right now that's linked to housing. Um, and, you know, the environment that the business was purchased in when we bought it, 
was like the housing market was extremely, you know, frothy. Basically, you know, interest rates were low. Everyone, I mean, everyone can look at their real estate values over the last few years and see this enormous increase, right? And so um, I think we underestimated how much uh, this business was benefiting from, you know, that that very competitive home buying market um, that was out there, home buying and selling market. And so, you know, there are things like that. So I would, you know, look, we have more, we have many more wins than we have losses. And, you know, that's the value of portfolio management, right? Like you have a series of businesses, you know, you're not just dependent on one company that sells aprons, like our original purchase Hudson Durable Goods. You have many businesses across different sectors and, you know, some are going up and some are going down. Um, Hopefully many more are going up than going down. But the idea that you can make 17 purchases like we have and not make any mistakes and not have results that you didn't expect and not overlook things. It's insane. Of course that's going to happen. What's one of the ones that you've bought that is, that's just skyrocket taken off? Like you've just like five exit or 10 exit, or, or do you have something like that as well? Or are they all, or are they just a kind of a steady growth? We don't, we don't have any that we've 10 X'd. We do have some that have doubled uh, or tripled and, you know, in a short period of time in a, in, in a year or two. And, yeah. And so, you know, the, you know, we have one business in the medical uh, space. Uh, you can see on our website called Patient. That it's been an incredible purchase. And we, we, we've doubled its revenue easily and grown its uh, actual profitability even more than that. And so you know, that, was a, that was a really big win. And there were some interesting things there. You know, they were doing a lot of FBM tripping when we first, you know, got involved with it. We changed everything over to FBA. Most of the listings doubled their conversion overnight when we did that. You know, a bunch of the listings were really crappy. We improved them a lot. We got better photography, et cetera. All the things that aggregators do. We ran PPC smarter, right? All of those things, you know, added up to a, almost a triple now, I think. I have lost track a little bit. But yeah, so look, we have our shares of wins. We have our shares of losses. That's going to be true for any portfolio that you're managing. I think the key bit, right, is to be a good picker, like pick businesses that, that you know, have great potential, which I think, you know, when you're trying to buy 250 in three years, inevitably you're going to, you know, you're not, you're going to make more bad choices. It's you're going to feel rushed to pick if you will. Um, so be a good picker, but then after that, like be a good operator. Right. And so, you know, you put those two things together and, and we, we, we think we're good, pretty good at picking. We work really hard to be good at operating and, you know, go from there. But I, you know, back to the question about what happens, Look, Amazon is going to continue to be an incredible opportunity for entrepreneurs. Um, and some set of people will figure out how to build scaled companies that are good at being Amazon sellers, and some people will not. Um, and I think, you know, I'm hopeful that we're one of the winners in the space, but we don't know yet. We're pretty optimistic about it. But I don't think that anything is inherently impossible or broken about the model. But I do think it is a heck of a lot harder than people thought. And I think you have to show up every day and have real expertise and really care. Uh, just like making any company successful. It's, it, this entrepreneurship is no different than any other entrepreneurship. It takes grit. It takes hustle. It takes brain power. It takes capital. Um, and it takes some luck. And you put all those things together and sometimes you win. 
So if I'm looking to sell my business to someone like you, what is a few points that I need to keep in mind when I say, hey, I'm ready to exit my business now. Hey, Matt, would you take a look or are you maybe interested? What are some things that you'd like to see? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that's interesting is what's happened in the market. You know, as you get bigger, whether you're Profound Commerce, whether you're Thrasio, whether you're anybody else, the bigger you get, naturally, the more you want to look at bigger deals because you have accumulated, you know, a bunch of revenue. Say you've got a hundred million in revenue, a one million dollar deal just isn't that interesting anymore in terms of like moving the business forward, right? All of a sudden, you're thinking like, I need to buy at least a ten million dollars more in revenue. Like, you know, that would add ten percent. But if I buy, you know, one one million dollar business, that's like only moving, you know, one percent increase. And I think that that's something that entrepreneurs need to better understand, you know, not better, but understand is that, you know, as aggregators get bigger, they're going to increasingly want to do bigger deals. And so, you know, if your business is a few million in revenue, a couple hundred thousand dollars in profit, there isn't the same market for that that there was at the beginning. And now, if you've got a $10 million business that's throwing off, you know, $2 million a year in, you know, in profit, and is still growing rapidly, that is a very, very interesting business to people like me and many others in the space. And so um, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. I think another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, I was talking about how last year it was like a race and everyone was trying to move as fast as possible. You know, people were saying like 30 or 45 day closes, we can get your money in five minutes and we'll give you a Tesla too in the process, right? I think those days are over. Um, and it doesn't mean that your very good business can't command an attractive valuation. But what it does mean, I think, is that the process is going to go slower and it's probably going to take longer. There's going to be greater scrutiny on the front end than there was previously a year ago. And so I think, you know, that process is very difficult for an entrepreneur, right? Like selling your business is time consuming. Uh, it, it's expensive. It's obviously emotionally difficult. Um, and the process is now, you know, it's more of a buyer's market now than it was a seller's market a year ago. And buyers can be more selective. They can take their time. Um, they can stretch the process out even more. And so I think entrepreneurs sort of need to understand that new reality that, you know, where they had a lot of leverage a year ago or two years ago, that is, that is a bit different now. Now, that doesn't mean that we're, you know, going to be jerks about buying your business. And I hope that's true of all the other aggregators, honestly. But it does, but the market is different and sort of your expectations of how these transact, you as a seller, your expectations of these, how these trans, transactions are going to go, it's going to be different than it would have been last year. It's two things that come to mind. So if I'm new or just getting started in this business and, you know, I just uh, went through the freedom ticket or I just found out about this and I'm listening and trying to gather as much information, you said it earlier, the days of, just going into Alibaba and sticking your name on something and selling the next garlic press are pretty much over. What do yeah. I have to do to make myself, if my goal is to exit in a couple of years from now, what do I have to do to make my now to make myself attractive? Do I have to be truly innovative and come up with some brand new design and brand new thing? Is it about my marketing? Is it about being off of Amazon and having diversification? What or having I, a, I, just building a true brand. What, what do I have to having an audience or what, what do I have to do? Yeah, I, I think it all works together, um, honestly. 
But if I had to pick any of those from the list, I would say branded audience. What you've ended on, I think, is actually the most important piece. And it kind of gets back to something I was talking about before, how every piece of real estate on Amazon, from my perspective, is fleeting. You never own your keywords. It doesn't matter how many reviews you have. You can always be displaced. But from my perspective, you know, as a buyer, long-term value is in brand and in audience. And so you know, brand is your story you know, how you talk to your customers, certainly your, your, your visual look and feel, but it's really, you know, what you stand for, right? When someone buys your product, what does it mean to them? And, you know, if, if, you know, and, and then also on the audience side, you know, your audience is your tribe, right? The, 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 the people who are your raving fans who, you know, who love you, who love your product and they love your brand and they even like love you as an individual entrepreneur. Um, and so, you know, those things, brand and audience, I see those as being much more permanent than your search position on Amazon. And so if you've got, you know, an attractive brand where you can, you know, innovate and create new products and introduce those, and then you've got an audience that you can sell them into, that is something that is sustainable and durable and is worthy of someone buying your business and continuing it forward. If you just have a product that you've plucked up, you know, plucked off Alibaba and is essentially a commodity and might even just be a little bit better than the previous garlic press and say it accumulates a bunch of reviews and a bunch of cash flow or revenue and then cash flow. At the end of the day, you've got revenue and cash flow. You have something, but what do you have of sustainable, durable value that is going to be worth something to someone, not just, you know, in the next five minutes, but in the next five years. And I think that that it, it is not the same environment as was where like, Oh, that that product has a lot of revenue and cash flow. I want it, it you know, as a, as a buyer. It's more about like you building something that is interesting and differentiated. You know, has a brand that some set of people care about, and has an audience that you know you can continue to mine and and get harvest value out of over time. Awesome, I can't agree more. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you taking some time today and, uh, and sharing with us uh, your journey and your thoughts about everything. Uh, it's been it's awesome. I'm sure we could sit here and talk for another two or three hours. And if people want to reach out to you and, and get a hold of you, what's the best way to, 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 to learn more or to, to reach out? I mean, it's mhoward at profoundcommerce.com, you know, email address. Feel free uh, to reach out. We also info at profoundcommerce.com. More general list. We'll get to more people. Um, but, you know, my personal email is, is mhoward at profoundcommerce.com. So happy to engage uh, with anyone and everyone about this space and, uh, you know, share our knowledge and, and importantly, also learn from you. So happy to chat. Well, I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks again for your time today. Great, Kevin. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. As you can see, Matt is passionate about this business and he's super smart. If anybody can make this work, it's going to be Matt. Don't forget also, if you're trying to make your business work, you need to sign up for the Helium Tent Elite. Every single month, I bring on three guests, and I also speak myself with my seven ninja hacks. It's something you don't want to miss. Plus, we have roundtables where once a month, we all get on a Zoom call, and we just help each other out. We talk about whatever is happening in the world of Amazon e-commerce. If someone's got a problem, the group tries to help them, give them direction. 
It's a, it's a great opportunity for you to really advance your business. Plus, as a Helium 10 Elite member, you get access to some special tools that nobody else has access to. You get to come to the quarterly in-person meetings that happen in Irvine or sometimes in other places. There's actually one coming up in Las Vegas just before Sale and Scale Summit that a lot of Helium 10 Elite members will be at. And you get to go to those things for free. So check it out and hopefully you will join us there. Before we go this week, I just want to leave you with the little words of wisdom. This is something I really believe. And part of this is, I, I, you know, I've traveled quite a bit. And this kind of goes with travel. It kind of goes with almost anything, really. But it's, it's better to see something once than to hear about it a thousand times. I really believe that. It's better to see something once with your own eyes than to hear about it a thousand times. I'll see you next week on the next episode of the AMPM podcast. Take care.